We're going to be in Romans 6 this morning. Romans 6. Romans 6. And before we get started, I just want to make one last announcement here. Uh, first Sunday that they're able to make it, we have little autumn llamas here. So uh, Adam and Stacy's little gal sitting here in the front row. So if you get a chance, make sure you come over and love on her and uh, need to have her back with us. So, alrighty, we are going to be in Romans chapter 6. Now, we take a little bit of a change of direction here than what we have been going through. The first five chapters of the book of Romans has been Paul's way of presenting the gospel, talking about how God uses creation to be a witness for the gospel, but then how the gospel has been perverted through sin. And then through the rest of Romans there, through chapters 2, 3, and 4, I should say, he makes this case of how we're all sinners, only saved by Jesus, only saved by grace. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves in any way whatsoever. And it ends with the example of Abraham as an example of that, of faith, of being saved solely by Christ alone. And that's the first five chapters. Well, which takes us then to chapter 6 here, because chapter 6 changes it a little bit. first five chapters is all about being saved. Chapter 6 is, now that you're saved, how do you live the life? first five chapters, we want to tell you how to get saved, how salvation has nothing to do with you. It's all about Jesus. Chapter 6 is, now that you are saved, what are you going to do about this? Because this is where we struggle. We struggle a lot here with this idea of sin. We get born again, we get saved, we're trying to walk with Christ, but why do we keep doing the things that we know are wrong? Just jump ahead one chapter real quick to Romans 7. This is, we're going to get to this in a couple weeks, but really Romans 6, 7, and 8 all deal with the same topic, and really the point of it is, is really found in verse 15 of Romans 7. For what I am doing I do not understand, for what I will to do that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. Isn't that us? I mean, how does, doesn't that sound like us? What I want to do, I'm not doing. What I don't want to do, I'm doing. That, that, that's my Christian walk right there in a nutshell. Lord, why is that? I mean, if through the first five chapters of Romans, I'm born again and saved through Jesus alone. It's by your grace that's the only way I'm saved. So why is it that when I get saved, I still am sinning? I've been saved for uh, 18 years. And when I first got saved, there was things that I let go of. And I thought, oh, I'm finally done. 18 years later, those things still pop back up. It's this constant process of them popping back up again and again. The example I always use is that little kid's game of the whack-a-mole. You knock one mole down, another mole pops right back up. Same thing happens spiritually. You conquer, or I should say you think you conquer one area of your life. I'm never going to do that again. Another area of your life pops right back up. It's an ongoing battle. What's the answer? Well, let's find out what the answer is. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Let's just stop there for one second because Paul's point is a pretty simple point. Paul's point is, is understandable that if, listen, if, if God's grace covers everything and I can be forgiven, then why not just go out and do what I want to do and trust that the Lord's going to forgive me? Now, I know that nobody here would obviously ever think that because you guys are all spiritual super giants. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes you run into that mindset. Now, maybe not that exact mindset of, well, I'm just going to sin because I know God's going to forgive me. But the mindset I've run into a couple of times is really a two-folded mindset. The mindset, number one, of, listen, I know that God exists. I know that he's real. I even believe in the concept of Jesus and him dying on the cross, and I believe and understand all that. I'm just not ready right now. So later on in life, I'll, I'll make myself right with God. Okay, now that sounds good. There's even a parable about what I call deathbed conversions. Matthew chapter 20, if you want to get a chance to read it. It's the parable about getting saved at the last moment, and you're still in. I've been involved with deathbed conversions. I, I love them. They, they just warm my heart to think that this person, and I remember one I had a few years ago where there was a gal that was, was literally hours away from death, and she died about six hours after we got a chance to talk to her, and she accepted Christ right then, six hours later, she's in heaven. That's grace. That's God's love. That's God's forgiveness. The problem, though, with having this be your battle plan is, is a problem because, number one, you don't know when you're going to die. 
So therefore, if you make this plan that before I die, I'll just get it right with the Lord, you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. That's why today is the day of salvation. Number two, the problem with this is every time we reject the gospel, the Bible says our heart gets a little harder. And as your heart gets harder and harder towards the Lord, you know, at, at 15, your heart may be ripe for God. At 25, it may be ripe for God. 35, you're just not as interested. 45, 55, 65, you just may not care. Because every time you reject the Lord and reject his plan for salvation, your heart gets a little harder and harder towards him. And as your heart gets harder towards him, when it comes to that point of death, you're no longer thinking about the things of God. Best example in the Bible of this is Pharaoh. When Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh to uh, release the Jews from uh, slavery, they did all these miracles. And it says that the Bible says, I should say, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, every time Pharaoh saw those miracles, he hardened his heart and didn't want to believe. Well, eventually the Bible says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. It wasn't that the Lord said, okay, Pharaoh, I don't care if you want to get saved or not. I'm not giving you that opportunity. The point is that Pharaoh chose to reject God. So since he chose to reject God, God says, fine, that's your choice. Free will, I'm moving on. And what happens for us is as we continue in sin and reject the idea of the gospel, our heart gets a little harder and a little harder and a little harder. So when I look at verse 1, I don't really see the people saying, well, I know that God's just going to forgive me, so I'm going to sin anyway. No, what I see is the, I'll make it right sometime before I die, which you may not have time, or before I die, I'll just make sure God and I have figured it out. Your heart may become hard. Once again, that's why today is the day of salvation. You don't know what the future holds. So with that mindset, how do we do this, though? How do we live free from sin? Verse 2, certainly not. Obviously, that's Paul's answer. You don't live that way. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death? The key here is you have to die to sin. Verse 2, I heard a teaching one time on this, and a pastor says, you can't tempt a dead man. There's a lot of truth to that. If you're dead, there is no temptation. Well, Paul says, I want you to be spiritually dead to sin. So therefore, it doesn't tempt you. It doesn't bring you down. If you're dead to sin, verse 2, how can you live in sin? Here's the problem that we run into as Christians. Why do we continue to sin after we get saved? Because we haven't died to sin. We allow it to live in our lives. We allow it to take root in our lives. We allow it to keep those little areas that we're not really ready to give over to God. And so what happens is those areas stay alive, and unless you kill the weed at the root, it still sprouts up. So until we die to sin, sin will always live in us. Verse 3, the goal is to be baptized into Christ as to be baptized into his death. Now, when we do baptism out here, we do something called full immersion baptism, where you go into the water... And as you go into the water, you go down into the water, and then you come out of the water. And it's a symbolic thing. We say that that's in the water. The water represents this idea of cleansing and newness of life. As you go down into the water, it represents going into the grave and dying. And as you come out of the water, it represents coming into newness of life, rising, if you will, into salvation. It's a symbolic thing, and it's a great picture of that. Well, J. Vernon McGee makes a great point in his commentary. He says, when baptism is mentioned here in chapter 6, he goes, there's no water. Even though the water baptism is a picture of this idea, verse 3, of being baptized into Christ, being baptized into his death, this word baptized actually means united. And so what it's saying here is just as Jesus died, we need to die with him. As Jesus died for sin, we need to die to our sins. Just as Jesus rose from the grave into life, we rise from the grave into life too, free from sin. Look at verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of a resurrection. 
knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. See, just as Jesus died, we die also. Just as Jesus rose into life, we rise into life also. Well, the reason this doesn't work is sometimes we choose not to die. We hold on to things. Now, why would we hold on to sin? Truth of the matter is sin can be pleasurable. That's why we hold on to sin. Because we enjoy it for that time. We enjoy it for that season. We enjoy it for that moment. And so that's why we do it. We have to reach a point where we realize that pleasure that we get from sin is not worth the destruction that it causes. And we'll get to this in a little bit of the destruction of sin. But we have to realize, I want to die to it. I want to die to my sinful desires, my passions. Just as Jesus rose into life, I want to rise into life with him, free from this burden of sin. And this is the point that Paul tries to build on here. Look at verse 7. We always try to pick out the key verses. Well, the problem is almost every verse in Romans 6 is a key verse. Verse 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. How simple is that concept? You died, you're freed from sin. If we die with Christ, we also live with Christ. That's Christianity in a nutshell. I die to who I am. James Irvin likes to sin. So I die to that concept. I die to that idea of, Lord, I don't want to do that anymore. And because you died on the cross, I know I can have freedom from this. And so therefore, as you die, I die. Lord, as you live, I live. Now, is it that simple? Yeah, it actually is. The problem is the follow-through. The answer is really simple. The follow-through is hard. You don't want to sin? Don't sin. That's what Paul says. Now, how do we do that, though? How do we reach that point of saying, Lord, I, I just, I'm just not going to do it? Because the problem is we try that, don't we? Haven't you seen people try? I know I've tried in my life. The example I always give to this, and you can remember back to maybe your grade school lessons, remember the story of Benjamin Franklin and his virtues? He, he, he decided what was important virtues. And so he made a list of virtues, and what he said was that he was going to make his life virtuous like this. And so he was going to pick an area, and let's just say he picked, I'm not going to lie. So he would go so many days, and if he would lie, he would mark down, okay, I lied. So he has to start from the beginning. And when he got so many days of not lying, he says, I've conquered that virtue, and now I can move on to the next one. But what Benjamin Franklin ran into was as soon as he conquered one, he'd move on to the next one. Well, a couple weeks later, he may have conquered one or two. He found himself going back and doing the things that he thought he conquered at first. That's in nature. You think you got it for a while, but eventually it pops back up. We still do the same thing today. It's that whack-a-mole example. I know people that call me up. They'll call me up on a Saturday morning saying, Pastor, you know what I did last night? And they'll go through all the sore details. And they say, I'm never going to do that again. I am never going to go to a party like that again. I'm never going to drink like that again. I'm never going to go home with a woman I don't know. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. I'm not going to do that stuff again. So for a week or two, they live virtuously through their own quote-unquote power. Well, then they fall right back into the trap. And it doesn't have to be the hardcore sins, right? It can just be those little tiny sins that aren't that big a deal. I'm not going to snap at my wife anymore. I'm not going to yell at the kids anymore. I'm not going to cuss anymore. And so you try really hard for a while. And you can do it for a while. But after a while, you can't. Why? Because you didn't die to that sin. You just took all your effort and put it into trying to stop that sin. And your effort's not strong enough to beat sin. You have to die. You have to die to Christ. And you have to reach a point where you say, Lord, what this sin does to my life my family, my witness, if you're married, my wife, my kids, my husband, whatever it is, it's not worth it. Ultimately, what it does to my Savior is not worth it. Because here's the problem with sin. We don't see the effects of it right away. You can go into the privacy of your own living room and watch stuff online that you shouldn't be watching, 
and maybe no one will catch you. You can go to work and have your boss say stuff that you don't like, and you would never verbally say something, but my goodness, the thoughts going through your mind would make your mom blush. No one saw it. No one knows, right? Maybe those couple glances towards that attractive girl that no one saw. See, we get away with it, right? And so we start thinking it's okay. problem is we didn't get away with it. No one else saw us. God saw us. So this is what happens. I sometimes have people come into my office, and they're ready to stop. They're ready for their life to be different. I remember years ago I had a gal come into my office, and she was just had a, a horrible weekend. She was doing very hardcore drugs, and she got back, and her, her and her husband was talking. She wanted to be done. So they came into my office, and I'm, she's just, I'm ready to be done. I don't want to do this anymore. And I remember asking her, why, why do you want to be done? And she went through the whole list of why she wanted to be done. But the problem was never in that list of why she wanted to be done was because it was wrong and it was hurting her Savior. See, here's the thing. If you want to quit yelling at your kids or yelling at your spouse or looking at stuff you shouldn't look, unless you're doing it because your Savior, Jesus Christ, knows it's wrong, you're eventually going to go back into it. Because after a while, let's just be blunt. After a while, we say, I don't care if my spouse thinks. I still want to do it. I don't care if my kids catch me. I don't care. I don't care what my boss thinks. But ultimately, we have to stop and say, I care what my Savior thinks about my actions and my lifestyle. So when I care about what my Savior thinks, then I want things to be different because he sees everything. He's the one that I stand before. I'm not going to stand before dawn. Even though she may think she's God, I will not stand before dawn to give an account of my life. I will not. I will not stand before you. I will not stand before my kids. And you won't stand before me. We will stand before God and we'll have to say, this is the account of my life. So I want to die to sin not because of my wife, not because of my kids, not because of you guys. I want to die to sin because of Jesus Christ. Now, when I die to sin because of Christ, my family is blessed and hopefully the church is blessed. But I'm doing it for the Lord because he did it for me. He died to sin for me. Now, wouldn't it be easier if we just got zapped right when we sinned? I mean, wouldn't it be a little bit? I mean, can't you imagine like your boss is just being a pain and so you just want to say something and so you get ready to open your mouth and boom, you just get shocked. So you catch yourself. So you don't say anything. Problem is, that's not your heart. Your heart wants to. You're just not doing it because you don't want to get shocked. See, and this is the problem with that type of mindset. God says, James, I'm not going to shock you every time you sin. I want you in your own free will choice to choose not to do it because you love me. Lord, it would be so much easier if you could just shock me every time. That's not obedience. That's not. We want to do it because we know what Christ did for us. Go back and look at these verses one more time. Look at verse 7. If he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Look at verse 11. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Jesus died once so I could have eternal life in him. I want to die and be united together with Christ in death so I can have life with him, life more abundantly. Now, note the progression here. First five chapters, gospel. Perverted by sin. Creation, I should say, has been perverted by sin. You need to be saved through Jesus. There's nothing you can do about that. It's only Christ and Christ alone. That's the first five chapters. The first ten verses of chapter six is now that you're saved, you have to reach a point where you realize, I want to die to that sin. I don't want that sin to control me anymore. Which takes us to verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That word reckon. Unless you're from south of the Mason-Dixon line, we don't really use that word. Now, reckon means to consider. Some of your translations may say, consider yourselves dead to sin. That word is where we get our English word logic. In the Greek, it, it's logic. I can't say it. I was about to sound intelligent, and I just screwed that up. So, 
Alan, can you just rewind the tape a little bit here? So it's a Greek word, and it's really cool. Just let me tell you that. That's where we get our English word logic. That's what it is. And so what happens is what Paul is saying, this is logical. And how many times have we said that in Romans? This is a very logical book. Paul is saying, once you get to verse 11 of chapter 6, it's just logical for you to reach a point of saying, I want to be dead to sin. It just makes sense. So now we've talked about everything that God does and everything that Jesus does. Here is our responsibility now in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments for righteousness to God. For sin should not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. You don't want to sin anymore? Verse 12, don't do it. Verse 13, don't present your members to sin. Oh, come on, it's not that easy. Actually, it is. See, here's the problem we do with sin. Sin is full of excuses. Some of you may have been raised in the most dysfunctional of dysfunctional households. But the reason you sin today is because of your own personal choice. Well, my upbringing, the way I was raised, the situations dealt to me in life, those may have all been horrible. You may have been trained to live a lifestyle that is not aligned with God, but you still have a free will choice to choose to be good or to be bad. It's your choice. Paul makes it abundantly clear right here. Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. I have the choice to obey or not obey. Verse 13, I can choose how I present myself. I can either present myself to sin or I can present myself righteousness. Everything has a choice. I talk about the half-second decisions. Your boss says something you don't like. You've got a split second there to decide, how do I respond? Do I respond in the flesh? I'm choosing sin. Do I let it go? I'm choosing righteousness. You come home and your spouse, be it your husband or your wife, did something you don't like, split-second decision. How do you respond? Respond in righteousness, do not say anything, or do you respond in sin? Hey, you want to fight? Let's fight. Just like anything, you can change the station on your TV. You can make a choice to realize, I don't want to do this. Okay, James, it's not that easy. It is that easy if you die to sin. Problem is, don't tell anybody, I haven't died to sin yet. I'm still trying to figure that one out. Because as long as there's flesh in these bones, as long as there's a heartbeat going on here in my flesh, there's still going to be sin nature and it's an ongoing process until the day I die and go home to heaven with Christ. It's a battle to live a life victoriously in Jesus. But I make the choice on what I want to do with that. I make the choice of whether I want to build my life up in the Lord to help me die to sin or whether I just want to live in sin. I make that choice. Every single situation you go to, you can either use it for the Lord or you can use it for sin. Bob Coy has a great teaching point on this, and I'll steal his point. He says, everything you do in life can either be used for the glory of the Lord or not. And he says, usually somebody comes up to him and says, okay, well, Bob, that, that's a big statement that's also really silly. If I'm driving to work, how do I use that for the glory of God? Bob says, what do you choose to listen to? You can have a quiet time of prayer to prepare your heart for the Lord. You can have time of worship. You're using that, that neutral thing as a time for God. Or you can listen to inappropriate stuff on the radio, or you can get yourself all mad and worked up about the day. That's using it for negative. He uses the example of, okay, let's say you want to go to a ball game. That's a pretty neutral thing. You can use that time at the ballgame. You can take your kids with you, your friends. You can have good, godly, clean Christian fellowship. Or you can go there and get totally wasted out of your mind. You can choose how you want to use anything in life. So what it comes down to very simply is this. Whatever you're doing in life, it may be a very neutral thing. Mowing the yard. Oh, what do you want to listen to while you mow the yard? What do you want to think about while you mow the yard? And this is what you're doing is you are choosing how to present your body to righteousness. Because there's going to come a time and a place where you're doing something neutral like mowing the yard. And unless you train yourself and die to sin to use that time for righteousness, when the temptation comes up, you're not strong enough and ready to say no. You're not strong enough and ready to say no. And so Paul is trying to tell us here, you die to sin, and then you and your own free will choice 
choose not to go down that path. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Verse 16, do you not know that whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? But God, we think that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Very simply put, you've got to serve something. You're either going to serve sin or you're going to serve God. It's that simple. That's what he's saying right there. Now, there's always somebody that says, nope, I'm my own man. I don't need to serve anybody. That's a bunch of baloney. Because I see those people serve. They may not think they're serving sin, but they're serving sin. The only thing they think about is Friday night and where the next party is going to be. The only thing they think about is what other woman they can bring home with them. The only thing they think about is that overtime and that money. They're serving sin. They are serving that concept of sin. They may think they're making their own choices and living their own life. No, they're serving sin. That's what it comes down to. And that leads to a life full of regret. I'm telling you right now, I've been at a lot of final moments of life. And I've never seen one person in their final breaths of life say, I wish I would have worked that extra overtime. I've never seen one person say, I wish I would have went to one more party. Never. Because those lead to nothing. It leads to emptiness. It leads to death. Verse 16. Because why? It makes you a slave of sin. You may think you're free, but you're really serving that concept instead of serving righteousness. Verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanliness and of lawlessness leading to more lawliness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. He goes, now listen, highly paraphrased, verse 19, when you were living in sin, you were really good at it. Sin led to more sin, which led to more sin. Or as he says right here, you presented your members as slaves of uncleanliness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Your sin went to sin to sin. So very simply in verse 19, he goes, choose holiness. I heard somebody say one time, and I can't remember who it was, and they said, before I got saved, they go, I serve sin with all my might. The only logical conclusion is now that I'm saved, I want to serve God with all my might. That's what it comes down to. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin... You are free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in those things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Look back to your before you got saved life. For those that are saved. What fruit came out of that? A bunch of old bar stories? Oh, I remember the time we went and did this. Yeah, that's not a lot of fun. In fact, it says in the book of 1 Peter, it says, just as the dog returns to the vomit. And what a horrible picture. I don't need to explain the analogy because you've all seen it, but I got a video. I'm just kidding. Um, it's a horrible picture, but when you look at that passage, just as the dog returns the vomit, do you realize that's what people do? I've shared this joke with you before, but this is what I really think goes through my mind. I see the people out there, and they're dating some guy, some gal, that is not a good godly choice for them. They finally realize it. They realize they shouldn't be in that relationship, so they break up. A few weeks later, they're back, and my first thought is, it's nice to see you dating vomit again, because you return to the vomit. That's what it is. Or you see the person that once again calls me on Saturday. Pastor, I'm never going to do that again. Two weeks later, they return to the vomit. What a horrible picture. But that's what it is. And when you stop and you look at that and you think about what that verse means, that's disgusting. Spiritually, it's disgusting to jump back into that lifestyle. Spirit, it's just horrible. We got this book at home. I can't even believe I'm using this example. Forgive me. We got this book at home. I just read it to Layden last night, so it's fresh in my mind. It's a classic. It's called Mrs. Wishy-Washy. Anybody know the story of Mrs. Wishy-Washy? There you go. It's, it's six pages long. It takes me a good hour. But the problem is there's, there's, there's a cow, there's a duck, and there's a pig. And they all find this pile of mud, and they go jump in the mud. And Mrs. Wishy-Washy shows up. 
She cleans the cow, she cleans the duck, she cleans the pig, and they're all clean. And they all leave. You know what the last page of the story is? The cow, the duck, and the pig jump right back in the mud. I was reading that last night to Layden. I thought, as I'm reading to Layden, but spiritually, isn't that not what we do? We get out of the mud, God cleans us up, and we jump right back in it. We jump right back into the mud. We go right back to the vomit. That's exactly what we do. And what Paul is trying to say here, look at verse 21. What fruit did you have then in those things which are now ashamed? I remember one time Dawn and I got into this argument, and I remember we got done with it, and you know, after the emotion dies down, and you get back to reality, and you think about the things you said. I remember one time going to her, and I said, Dawn, I am embarrassed. I'm embarrassed as a Christian. I'm embarrassed as your husband. I'm embarrassed as a father. I'm embarrassed as a pastor. I think that we got to that point. And you stop and you look at it and it's like, why did we jump back into that mud? But that's what we do. What fruit do we have in those things that we are now ashamed? Great example of this. Can you turn to 2 Samuel 13? 2 Samuel 13. There's a wonderful Old Testament picture of what sin does and, and what it does to jump into that pit and then the shame that it brings. 2 Samuel 13. Some of you may be familiar with the story in 2 Samuel 13. It's about Ammon and Tamar. Ammon and Tamar in 2 Samuel 13. 2 Samuel 13, let's go ahead and start here in verse 1. It says, After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Ammon, the son of David, loved her. Now Ammon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick. She was a virgin, and it was improper for Ammon to do anything to her. Did you ever something you wanted so bad? But you knew it was wrong. I mean, you knew it was wrong. There's no doubt about it, it was wrong. But you wanted it so bad. Verse 3. Haman had a friend whose name was Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Why are you the king's son becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Haman said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food. And I prepare the food in my sight that I might see it and eat from her hand. Then Ammon lay down and pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see him, Ammon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go into your brother Ammon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Ammon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. Don't you just see this picture developing? This guy's just lustfully staring at her. Now, we do the same thing in sin. We think about it. Whatever that is, is it that next drink? Is it that girl at work you shouldn't be flirting with? Is it that guy that you shouldn't be with? Is it that thing you want to watch? Is that thing you want to say? We just dream about it. We have these sin fantasies. Verse 9, she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amon said, have everyone go away from me. They all went away from him. Then Amon said, Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amon, her brother, in the bedroom. Now, when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And where could I take my shame? As for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he would not withhold me from you. However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Now stop there for a second. Is this not what sin does? Verse 13, sin makes you a fool. It makes you a fool. Those people that tell those stories of conquest and drunkenness and debauchery, that's a fool. It's an absolute fool. It's the person that comes, well, you know what I told my boss the other day? Oh, he came in, and I told him, that's a fool. That's an absolute fool. Well, why does sin win? Sin wins because why? Verse 14, we don't listen, would not heed her, 
And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Sin's strong. And the truth of the matter is, unless I die to sin, and unless I give myself over to righteousness, sin is stronger than me. It is. So when somebody comes into my office and says, I'm really struggling with X, Y, or Z, and one of the first things I ask them is, how are you doing spiritually? Not good, they say. Right there's your problem. There's no spiritual strength to say no to sin. That's why it's so vital, guys, to have that quiet time with the Lord to be involved in church, to have that time of worship, to have that time of prayer. Because you may not see the fruit of it right then, but what you're doing is building up spiritual strength and dying to yourself. So therefore, when sin comes and wants to wrestle you away from God, you're strong enough through Christ Jesus to say no to it. What happens when you give in? Verse 15, Then Ammon hated her exceedingly, so that he hated her, that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. And Ammon said to her, Arise, be gone. You hate yourself then. You hate yourself for making that choice. You hate yourself for putting yourself in that position. You hate yourself for what you said, what you did, film in the break, and so you hate yourself. And you hate yourself so much that you, what do you do? You just hide. You hide from church, from the pastor, from the Lord, and everybody, because who could love you? Who could be? Who could do anything? Because you're just this horrible, nasty sinner. What does it say in Romans 8.1? There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Every single one of us here this morning have failed horribly spiritually. Jesus forgives. But the purpose of Romans 6 is we know Jesus forgives. We've covered that through the first five chapters. The purpose of Romans 6 is to say, okay, now once he picks you up and washes you up, don't go jump back in the mud. Stay away from the mud. Stay away from the vomit. Stay away from those things. There's no fruit that comes out of that. And the strength to say no comes through your time in the Word and worship and fellowship and prayer and communion. If those areas of your life are weak, how do you expect to win the battle? So what we want to finish with here today is communion. is to say, let's go to the source of strength and say, okay, God, it has to be you. Keep looking on here. Verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Very simply put, you are a tree and you're going to produce fruit. You're either producing fruit of sin or fruit of holiness. There is not a middle ground. There's not. Every action you do, every word you speak, every thought you have either takes you deeper in your walk with Christ or takes you farther in your walk with Christ. I should say farther away from him. What fruit is on your tree? The fruit's there. The Bible says in the book of John that by your fruit you'll know them. When God comes and checks out the crop, what's he seeing? And that's why the Bible says that sometimes the Lord has to come and spiritually prune you. He sees some branches producing fruit that is not healthy. God says the best thing to do is cut them off. And what do we do? Oh, Lord, don't cut them off. I just promise I won't grow any bad fruit on that branch anymore. No, we have to cut the branch. Is it painful? You bet it is. Does it hurt? You bet it does. But we know that that's the way you die to sin. It hurts. Why do we have to die? Because look at verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Very simply put, we have a bill of sin that we cannot pay. And so if we try to pay this bill of sin on our own, on our own righteousness, we can never pay the bill. As we talked about last week, Isaiah 64, 6, all of our works are like filthy rags. Whereas we think as righteousness, God sees as sin. So if we think we can earn ourselves into God's good graces and love, that's ridiculous. God says, I love you no matter what. Remember that verse from last week? God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you, he died for me, he died for all of us. And so therefore, it's only through him that we can pay this bill of sin that we can't pay on our own. Because if we choose not to pay it, God says you've got to pay the wages. What's it going to be? With that being said... That's why we want to finish with communion here. If the guys that are helping with communion want to come forward and hear uh, also Marv with the songs.
The reason we want to end with community